welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Perland. I'm the author of Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on critter training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we are having a wonderful conversation with Lucy Butler. Lucy has been a guest on this podcast several times before. She is a teacher, a special ed teacher. And what I would recommend, if you have not heard the podcast with Lucy, I would recommend that you go back into the archives and listen to the podcast that we did last year. Lucy's first podcast was about the start, at the start of the school year, she was given the assignment of taking all of the repeaters of, of ninth grade. And so she had was given the very challenging task of helping these students to become successful. And the uh, incorporating in the work of, from behavioral analysis and with the help of some wonderful coaches, she, was, she just had a very, very exciting year. So we did the first podcast and we did several other follow-up uh, podcasts related to that. And now we are jumping in halfway through the school year to find out what year two is like. And so Lucy, do you want to add anything to that introduction before we jump in into year two and find out what's been going on? No, I, I think you I think you encapsulated that very well. And it's really exciting and uh, an honor, of course, to be back to talk about the journey into uh, the next year and, and to think about how to keep progressing. So yes. and, and even though we are talking about the teaching of uh, human learners and we're teaching, talking about uh, working within a system of school, there are very much direct parallels and things to be learned from your experiences that relate to the horses. And so they're, they're, I think this conversation will be of interest if you have children in the school system, I'm sure it will be of interest. And then for all of us who, who are just madly horse crazy where we're going, never mind those human learners, <laughs> tell me about horses. I think you will find that, that there will be pieces here where you're going, oh, 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 interesting. Uh, I see the connection. The so, parallels are, are definitely uh, well. They're they're there. They're, they're there. They're, yeah. So, yeah. So, where do you want to jump in? Uh, well, I could I could do a little um, uh, sort of bring everybody up to speed with year two. Okay. Do you want to remind us? Because people may not go back and and listen to those podcasts right away. Do you want to remind us? where you were at the end of, sort of where you started in 25 words or less kind of essay form, where you started, start of the school year last year, where you ended up, and then we can jump into year two. Certainly. So I think the the quick version is that I had, right before school started, or right at, right at the very beginning of school, I had attended science camp. Um, you and um, Jesus and Mary Hunter and had been, you know, working with positive reinforcement and constructional design with my horse, Rowan, 
and just loving it and seeing how effective and joyful and you know just wonderful it was and wondering how you know I, I go to school work all day seven hours and then leave and can't wait to get to the farm and experience the the world that is positive reinforcement and clip in uh, constructional design and then I was thinking how could I bring this into a classroom with human learners and you know fate just aligned so that I was given this assignment of working with they were I think I had 17 to begin with and I ended up with 13 after sort of the attrition that happens with attendance and everything, but 13 freshman students who were in their second or third freshman year. So they were repeaters. And my job was for 45 minutes a day at the beginning of the day to provide academic support, to try to provide really intensive services to get these students back on a successful track. Mind you, with very little guidance from anyone <laughs> in the building, it was like, have at it. Yes. See what All the teachers prior to the, you know, the, in this children's experience have, have failed to one degree or another, but here they are, succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Try. See what you can do, you know. See what you can do. It's a blessing and a curse if you're in the position I was in, which was just coming out of, you know, science camp, having connection with, with you and with, you know, Claire and, and with, with people who really have incredible knowledge about how to build skill. It was really a, a recipe for success and a lot of fun and, and a bit of a blank canvas. You know, they just said, here's, here's, have at it, you know? Yeah. So, so there wasn't a lot of guidance, but that was also a good thing. There wasn't a lot of guidance. So I could yeah. do what I wanted to do. So- um, And there's also, you know, it's a bit like, I mean, here's one of the parallels. When I was first really exploring training, I was, my personal horse, was severely disabled. I couldn't break her. She was already broken. Mm -hmm. No, physically, she was yeah. already broken. So whatever I did wasn't going to make things worse. I could experiment to my heart's de uh, delight because I couldn't, I couldn't break it any worse than it already was. But I had friends who had bought trained horses, expensive horses, mm -hmm. and they were afraid to touch them for fear of messing up the training. And so they ended up messing up the training. And they ended up coming to me to say, help. Because, you know, even though I wasn't starting with the trained horse, I wasn't afraid to go in there. And, you know, the expression is get my hands dirty. And so <laughs> you've got, you've got a, a perfect laboratory in that these children are already failing. They couldn't fail any more than they already were. You know, that some of them, I think you told us, they had zeros on there. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't get, you can't fail more than that other than just dropping out completely. Yeah. So, so it's perfect. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was great. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, um, had this aspiration. How could I migrate? positive reinforcement and constructional design into the classroom. And I had no idea how one would begin. And, you know, very fortunate that Dr. Claire St. Peter was part of that cohort of the uh, science camp and we connected and uh, Claire connected me to two of her doctoral students who served as coaches for me. We actually just, Catherine and, and Stephanie and I just finished writing a paper that we submitted for publication about the coaching experience because 
one of our takeaways is that, you know, um, the teacher, the classroom teacher, having good teachers to model the principles and to reinforce and to provide really targeted and individualized support. Basically, you know, there's this uh, sort of handing down of the principles that happen. Yes. Your teacher is a learner too. So we just wrote, we just co-authored a paper together on that and hoping that other behavior analysts and classroom teachers could benefit from that kind of collaboration. But we collaborated over the course of the school year to design a program that would implement those principles into that 45 minute a day period with my repeaters. And that just the nature of the schedule at the school is I, I got those students for half a year. So I'm actually at the same juncture right now because we're on the holiday break. When I get back to school on January 3rd, my current repeaters will be launched from me back out into to gen pop. <laughs> and I, I won't have <laughs> for my 45 minutes a day. So I, I worked with those students. There were 13 altogether the first year. This year I had 12 and created a program to try to increase their motivation, increase their understanding of how one accesses success in a school environment, basically. So making the reinforcers salient to them that are embedded in the school system. And then, you know, trying to build the skills as fast as we can. And, you know, we hope as durably as possible, because again, I have like 15 weeks with them before they, they go back into the, the regular ed setting. And during the course of that year, we made lots of discoveries about how to transplant the principles and use them in a public school setting. And you know, it was, it was very successful. It has been very successful. It's successful this year. And this year I've had a lot of opportunity to drill down on specific constructional design approaches. So that's been really exciting as well. And that I'm able to do in a regular ed classroom. I, I uh, co-teach with a math teacher and we teach geometry and algebra, a beginning algebra class that's like kind of a slower pace algebra and then a regular, regular paced algebra class, whatever that means. <laughs> so, um, you know, some, some sort of like beginning level and middle level math, high school math. So um, can, you, can you give us examples of how you've been able to use the constructional design in yes, a, your I, classroom? This has been such a bright spot this year. I've, I've just been uh, really enamored of it. So I, I'm co-teaching, which means there's a, a math, you know, uh, my co-teacher has a degree in math. He's a math expert and he's the lead teacher. So he'll be teaching general instruction to students, which I think most of us are pretty familiar with the kind of form that general instruction takes. It's sort of a presentation on, you know, it's math. So a set of processes, here's how you solve a problem. And then the students get practice to do. And I will find scoop up all the kids who are looking very baffled. You know, <laughs> that. Yeah. And then I will use the tools I've been turning to a lot is to, you know, to thin slice. So um, when we look at the typical kind of curricular materials and the way math in particular is fascinating, the way it's taught is we don't teach with loopy training and we do not thin slice. So usually um, I'm going to teach you how to solve a certain type of problem. So maybe like with my uh, young kids, the freshmen were solving for a variable in an algebra equation. So you have, you know, five plus A equals eight and you have okay. to figure out the 
is, right? Very simple. And so we learn how to solve for that variable and there's certain steps you take. And, you know, my co-teacher will teach first you do this, then you do this, then you do that, then you do that. Now you have the answer, good job. And some kids, you know, if their learning history has included this, you know, they've learned this before or maybe they have a proclivity for numbers, they might see it pretty quickly and some kids are just lost. And so I'll take them and I'll break it down, for example, on a worksheet and say, we're gonna solve all the first steps on these problems. So we're only gonna do step one on all of these problems on this worksheet. And then once we've done step one, now we have clean loops on step one. We'll go to step two, which is not the way I was taught. It's not the way my co-teacher they solve from beginning to end, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, so you're stumbling, you're you're stumbling at step one, and you're supposed to move on to step two. Yeah. And by step three, you're frustrated and you're giving up and you hate math. Yeah, and you hate math. Yes, but if I you're mean, doing step one, the first step, the first time you do step one, you may be clumsy and and it, and it doesn't go that well. But the second time you do step one, it's becoming more familiar. The third time you do step one. You're beginning to have a clue what you're supposed to do the fourth time. You're more confident the fifth time you've got it. Yes. So I'm looking for, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there in my mind thinking, thinking of you, Alex, and going, oh, we're just looking for clean loops. Can I get yes. a clean loop on step one for this child? And I'm not going to move forward until I have a clean loop on that first step. And of course, I, I'm, I'm, it's always, it's funny. It's like, I'm always having to stay just like, slightly ahead of things because sometimes the worksheet will have four or five problems that follow the same sort of algorithm you know like and then you'll see a problem that they've introduced a negative sign or something and I have to steer <laughs> away from that one and we can only you do the- change too many variables yeah, at no. once don't you know you're not supposed to do that <laughs> so I've gotten pretty fast at scanning the worksheet really quick and saying which of these follow the same pattern, but it's basically making the movement cycle or the algorithm for each step as salient as possible for the learner until they have a really clear idea of what that pattern is before I add another piece of complexity or a different variation on the pattern, which would be, I think it'd be a lot like when we talk about generalizing a skill. Now I'm going to change something in the environment or change something in the pattern um, slightly. Um, but you can't do that. And for my most vulnerable learners, you really, you, if the minute you introduce that variation in, if they're not ready, if that loop isn't clean, you oh. just set yourself back and you can, you run the risk of destroying whatever, you know, nascent confidence you have forming. It's very surgical. Yes. <laughs> <So>. yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing a lot of these students have had a lot of years of being convinced that they're not, that they can't, that they're incompetent when it comes to math. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, emphatically yes. And, and an interesting thing I've been doing lately, and this is sort of insurance in a way for me, because the, the, the part that's hard for me is I know that environment is so important and this instructional approach is, you know, not being practiced, you know, everywhere. And what I've what I've been learning in my environment is that I'll have these students for a certain period of time and we will make progress and we will build confidence and then the environment changes yes. um, because it's not systematic and it's not deliberate and we're not 
I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I haven't developed my skills to the point where I can like generalize all of this and, and really create the durability that can withstand the change in environment. And so I've been saying to them, I'm going to teach you in a very different way. And you are not to blame that you haven't learned this. It's because you have not been taught in a way that allows you to learn it. So wow. I do a lot of wow. deliberate talk about trying to, it's kind of terrible. I'm placing the blame back on the system, but trying to pull some of the blame off of the students. And I don't know how much of it sinks in and I don't know how able there are, they are to believe that, but I try to say it every single time wow. that I talk to them. It's you such are an not important message. You yeah. are not at fault. Yeah. yeah. You are not the, you are not to blame. You know, and look, I'm in some of them, because when I try to teach them this way, you're going to do all of step one across the worksheet. They're like, what? <laughs> you're going to do what? You know, um, but once they start to realize they're getting it right and it's accurate and, you know, they're starting to see it, they usually buy in. But so some of that conversation is a little bit around getting them to accept a different approach. Yep. But my, my intention is to try to at least plant the seed that they're not the flawed piece of the system because the yeah. system really wants to place blame back on the learner. Right, so. right. And, and that's an important message to be taking forward throughout your life that, you know, that you are not the, you are not the failure that the system is, could easily convince you that you are. That you are. Uh, yeah. it's, this is not an aggressive horse. The horse is aggressive under these conditions. This yes. is not a fearful dog. The dog is fearful under these conditions. Yeah. yeah. So and what does what does so this raises lots of questions. I mean, what does the primary teacher, the math teacher, think of all of this? Well, I'm super fortunate. My co-teacher this year is young, highly motivated, really dedicated teacher who has been very interested. He, and he's picking up what I'm doing and practicing it and, and learning as well. So it's, it's been great. Uh, he'll, he's, he's been calling me into classes that I don't co-teach with him and be like, do the thing you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So he's yeah. recognizing the, the value of it. Yeah. And, yeah. and do this, when you're working with the students, because one of the arguments that people will always make is, oh, but that takes so much longer. You know, if you do step one or 15 problems before you uh, tackle step two, it's going to take you forever to get to the final answer. And we would say, no, actually, you're going to get to the final answer instead of having the students failing right, left, and center. And that because the learning becomes very efficient, they will learn faster. Yeah. Um, so what are you finding? I think, well, so we actually applied, we used back chaining in whole group. So we taught every student, regardless of their, you know, proclivity and, and accomplishment at that point in the class, we taught just the, the general curriculum. We taught uh, standard deviation. So we have a class that's doing probability and statistics right now as a unit. Um, okay. Taught them how to calculate standard deviation using a back chained method. So we actually created a worksheet that was, I think it was eight pages long because our first problem that they did was solved all the way down to that last step. And we had them start at the last step. And then 
the next problem was solved to the second to last step and we had them solve last step, second to last step and work back all the way to the beginning. And, you know, that was amazing. He said, my co-teacher said, historically when he's taught standard deviation, standard deviation is not particularly hard math, but it's just an extremely long chain of basic arithmetic that learners usually just get confused and mix up what they do when at some stage yeah. in the pattern and get overwhelmed um, because it's just a long chain of behaviors. And so teaching it through back chaining, I mean, we were just blown away by how the kids scored when we eventually tested them. I think our lowest was like an 82 or something. And the kids just they just acted like, oh, they're like, oh, standard deviation. And in the past, they had, you know, whined and complained. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> a very fraught thing to teach. In fact, my co-teacher had been really nervous going into it. Oh God, we got to teach standard deviation. I hate teaching standard deviation because, of course, that teacher sense of success and competence is connected to their learner. Yes. Um, and it was a totally different world when we when we taught it through back chaining and and that worked particularly well because all of the arithmetic and in, in the standard deviation calculation the kids already have it's just addition subtraction averaging and then pressing your square root key on your on your calculator it's not complicated it's just it's a it's a pattern and a sequence you need to get in the right order so that was you know that was very cool because that was a case where we didn't split up the group and apply the the strategies to a select group we did it for everybody and we saw everybody benefit and you could say you know we made an eight page worksheet but the kids they just learned you know it was, it was a, a an errorless design you're we trying to teach that pattern without any introducing any errors into their into their uh, behavior chain and, and it was very successful. So, yeah, so for the people who say it's inefficient, ask any teacher who teaches something <laughs> and pours their heart and soul into teaching it and then goes and tests and goes, what happens? Like they didn't get it. Yeah. You know, that's usually what happens. Uh, they didn't get it. And, so. and I'm also thinking of all the people listening to this because we no doubt at some point had some exposure to uh, standard deviation and probably going, what, what, uh, what's that? Do I remember to, oh, I, you know, I, I don't even remember uh, yeah, how, how to do it, right? Whereas because these children have learned it, learned it errorlessly and have positive emotions towards it, they may retain it over a much longer period. Yes, yes. Uh, 100%. I, I mean, I, I didn't, a lot of times I don't remember learning what I'm about to teach in the mm -hmm. class. And when we go through these processes, it, it you know, even as the, the educator in the room, it's going to stay with us more. But we see that retention, you know, with the kids when we've, when we've really taken the time to either, whether we forward chain it, you know, and thin slice it or we back chain it, you know, we see the durability there. So. And once you've created that eight-page workbook, it's there. It's there. So next year, when this teacher is teaching standard deviation, he has the eight-page workbook on how to back chain standard deviation. So it's not as though he has to recreate this every mm -hmm. year. So in terms of his teacher prep, that 
that piece of the work is already done. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, just trying it, that's been really a bright spot for me this year is trying to support my co-teacher who is very often frustrated because he, I mean, he is so dedicated. He's, he's young. He's just pouring all of his energy and his hours after work. I mean, he's just a machine <laughs> trying to create material and do right by his students. And a lot of the teaching strategies that he was given in teacher training, they're not skill building strategies. They're, they're, you know, at best kind of presentation tools. How do you present about something? How do you talk about a skill? But they aren't actually, they're not coming from a behavior analytic, you know, it's it's funny because I met a teacher a few weeks ago and I talked about you. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he was set, yeah. He was a young new teacher uh, in biology and he and I was telling him about your experiment and he said to me, you know, we barely touch behavior analysis during our um, our education. You know, we, it's, he knew about operant conditioning, he knew all the words and all that, but he had no depth in it. Yeah. So the paper that I just wrote with Catherine, we talk about this and we'd like to get into doing some more research into looking just how little or how much different teacher ed programs go into it. But um, I think it's really, it's almost just sort of a thematic kind of topical approach like this is a discipline that exists and it's relevant (laughs) that's like as far as you get that was my experience was like I knew it existed and even as a special educator which you think there would be a bit more conversation going on because there's so much of the in terms of behavior analytic work going on in the behavior world it goes on in sort of the special ed especially in the world of you know services for people on the autism spectrum you see a lot of overlap there but it somehow doesn't migrate in yet what teachers are supposed to do every day is build skill and and it it just it blows my mind but my my co-teacher I think many times he's felt very frustrated and felt what any learner would feel when they're trying and they're not successful. You start to feel that, you know, extinction they go through and the frustration and all those emotions that um, sort of turn off motivation. He's going through that. And when I can step in and say, well, let's try this approach from behavior analysis and it works you know, it's, he's like, oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> and, and then I get to show him some of the logic, usually after the fact, okay, this is what I did. This is why I did it. This is where it's coming from. And then he'll, he'll try some of it on his own as well. So, so that's yeah. been amazing. That's so important because those are the teachers we want to retain in the system. Yeah. You know, the, the young dynamic, really wanting to help these students you want to maintain their enthusiasm. You don't want them to become the burned out teacher who's counting the days to retirement. Which is pretty much, there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of people yeah. do start with enthusiasm and finish up counting the days before they can retire, or even worse, because this teacher that I was talking with, I think he had been in for three years and he was already thinking about maybe not pursuing yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you're not, you know, I, I, this has been 
on my mind a lot this year is how the teachers are much like the students. If I'm looking at the environment and thinking about where are the reinforcers and what's creating motivation for the students to learn and engage, and is it thoughtfully designed, understanding those principles, understanding the principles of positive reinforcement, no, but it's, it's not designed that way often for teachers either. And so the teachers go in without the set of skills that they need to actually do the job. And they're, again, like you said, Dominique, there are people who like people, they wanna be of service, they love their content area, they wanna share that. Um, and they, <laughs> and then they're, they're underprepared, you know, like woefully often. And then they're giving so much and then they're just meeting with failure over and over again. And we know, we know when we study behavior, what that does to an organism, whether it's a student organism or a teacher organism, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what, he, what are they taught? I mean, I, that, well, that just I can, puzzles me. I can speak generally about like my experience and, and I would say that it's probably because the same approaches we use to teach students, we teach teachers. So the teaching method is not, again, it's not oriented towards building a skill where you have these loops of repetition of for sort of foundation skills that then build on other skills and that you would practice. It's instead, it's like a, um, lecture, a lot of lectures where you're, you're presenting information about what those skills would look like and what the outcome should be. So I guess it's outcome-based instead of process-based. Okay. You know, so I remember, you know, taking class on like measurement, like how to grade. And it wasn't like, here are some grades, input them. And what does that mean? It was just like, these are grades. This is how they go into a grade book. This is what an average is. This is what a mean is. This is what a bell curve is. I remember uh, classes on like classroom management. That was a lot of um, like, you might read a case study about a student who's acting out. And these are the things you could apply to do. None of which was like, think about the environment and you know what might yeah. be causing behavior. It was more like different types of punishment you could apply <laughs> to that mm -hmm. student. I mean, and I, it's interesting because I actually, before I just was really thinking about how behavior analysis could be applied to the classroom, I actually did a course of study on cognitive science and neuroscience for educators, thinking that the answer would be like, if I just understood how brains worked. Mm. that would really help me in a classroom. And I learned all kinds of things about how we acquire language and it still didn't, <laughs> it still didn't. You know, I, I could say why, you know, someone might have trouble reading, you know, but, but, you know, my experience, even working with all of my, my repeater students is it's a very small number of students who actually have a special situation in them and that their cognition is really different. Like 99% of the time, and I'm, I'm speaking generally here, I don't know the exact yeah. numbers, but the bulk of experience is students who just their motivation is completely mm -hmm. turned off and they are capable given the right environment and thoughtfully designed instruction. You know, <laughs> this, uh, this teacher, this teacher was, and, and it's, I know it's the case uh, in most classes here in Quebec where uh, we've, we've made the decision as society to have 
uh, not have like enriched classes. We have, you know, the students who have special needs with the regular students. And so he was telling me, you know, they're the really, well, he said like smart students who get it mm -hmm. and they would probably get it no matter what. Yeah. Then there's the really problematic, again, you know, I'm doing air brackets, the problematic children who are behaving in a way that is pulling all the teacher's attention. And there's all the ones in between that are, his word was, invisible. We don't see them. They don't ask questions. They're just like, you know, sailing under the radar. And he says, we spend so much time just managing the problematic children and it takes a lot of their time too because when they take a, ch a child out of the class they have to fill in forms I think it's 20 minutes per children that you take out of the class and so they feel that they're spending all their time on these children who have the special needs and they are not really helping all the others and I felt that he was really sorry for the invisible ones because yeah. he, he kind of felt that the other ones would probably be okay down the road. But all this middle cohort, he kind of felt sorry for that they were not getting what they should be getting out of the system. And of course, he was also becoming less and less motivated Although the government is telling these people that they are going to uh, send another adult in the class, hopefully people like you to help, well, with all the children, but to have two adults in, instead of just one. What do you think of that, having the, the children with special needs with the other children? Is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? Well, you know, I mean... For the, well, okay, so first of all, I want to say that I just agree with that young teacher's, you know, observation of what he's seeing playing out. I would say I see the same thing every okay. day. You have that cohort of invisible kids. They don't cause behavior troubles. Nope. They fly under the radar. But if you actually went to measure their skill, like what is your actual skill? What can you, if we took a baseline, like Alex says? you know, there, there might not be a whole lot there, but you just wouldn't necessarily know that by just looking at the room. So I agree with him on that. And in terms of having, you know, a, a heterogeneous grouping of skill levels, you know, first it's like this idea of like special ed, who are these kids that have extra needs? I go back to what I was saying before, in my experience, is it's pretty very small number actually of kids who actually have a cognitive difference mm -hmm. just cannot you know like like they're dyslexic like they actually mm -hmm. see the numbers or the letters on the page differently than someone else that's pretty that's pretty low number actually what you see is a lot of behavioral stuff which mm -hmm. again my opinion i don't actually know how much research or data there is but what i see is that you know nine times out of ten it's the result of confusing instruction that wasn't designed in a way, you know, for kids to actually build skill. And then they're asked to demonstrate a skill they don't have. As they start to fail, some of them are going to feel anxious and try to flee. They go to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> some of them put their heads down on the desk. Some of them start acting out because, you know, here's the other thing is in nature, when you're in an environment that's aversive or coercive or confusing, you leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't go anywhere they're stuck mm. there 
So they, they, you know, quit on the spot and they, and that can look different. So I think, you know, in terms of having those students sort of mixed in with everybody else, I think they are everybody else. They're mm -hmm. just a way of what different humans do when they're, or animals are asked, you know, are put in high stress environments with demand placed on them when they don't have the skills to respond. Right, right. And then if you do have them in a different class, it's a label too, you know, that they have to live yeah. with. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think it actually gets to the root of the problem. You could move all of those kids out and, mm -hmm. you know, say, I'm going to apply the same instructional approaches, just slower. Well, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that would at least give them a little bit more of a toehold because you slowed the pace down. But I don't know that it's actually going to get to the problem, which is we don't have instruction that's designed well. It's not thoughtfully designed. It's... Mm -hmm in my opinion, it's pretty random, <laughs> you know, and, and who, you know, if you think about like a, a child walks into a math class and one child maybe doesn't have quite the pro proclivity for numeracy and another one does, and they have sort of erratic instruction, maybe it's kind of presentation style. I'm going to talk to you about math. And the one with the proclivity sort of figures it out just by hearing the words and seeing it. And the one without it, they're not actually getting instruction. They're just sort of getting a tour through math and they don't, it doesn't mean that that other child isn't capable given the good instructions. Right. This one, like your, your, the, the young teacher you mentioned said, there's some who are going to learn it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me crazy is that we sort of teach to the ones who are going to learn it anyway. Well, they mm -hmm. don't have like, why am I here? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm being, I'm maybe I'm being a little harsh, but it's, it's, that's my observation after all these years in the classroom is what's sort of going on is, is it's not actually uh, always, you know, well-designed and crafted deliberate. That's really designed to move everybody's skill along. It's, it's, uh, it's very haphazard. Very haphazard. It's a big job to change the instructions uh, in all the classes, it's um, it's a big and yet you know, people are really looking for a reformation. Is that a word in English? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Um, because every here anyway, we keep hearing this, and this is end of year now, so there are all these uh, retrospective, and school is sure enough, it's in there. I mean, there's the health system and there's education. And they, you know, we're seeing that children are less and less learning less. The, the, um, the level is diminishing. There's more dropping out. So, uh, and the teachers want to go away. They don't want to be teachers anywhere anymore. So obviously something needs to be changed, but you know, it's a little bit like the health system. It seems like this mammoth uh, enterprise to change it you know it seems so big and yet you know what you're saying seems to make so much sense both for the teachers and for the uh, learners yeah yeah it's I, so I've been fine I've been running into that in my personal experience this year is it's almost almost more maddening because I feel like you know I spent last year trialing something and at the end of the year we said okay this works mm -hmm. so let's go. And, you know, it's taken off with my co-teacher. <laughs> he's, he's 
excited <laughs> and we're working closely together and doing what we can in our little classroom. So I guess if you look at last year, now I've pushed into one more room <laughs> for three periods there, but it's, it's really hard to get the attention of the leadership and to, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure how one starts to turn the tide of that mammoth system. And I, I, when I, when Alex and I were emailing about this podcast, I was sort of, uh, you know, floating it out there, the parallels in the horse training world, you know, I think many of us have encountered you, you know, you run up against sort of traditional methods and how do you, you know, do we try to change a whole system or do we just do our thing and, and, you know, let, people who are like-minded aggregate around it. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm finding it very hard to um, imagine how I go from the individual interactions, the one-to-one -one experiences that work to actually transformation. So, hmm. yeah. You know, there was, um, there's uh, at the University of Montreal here in the vet school, they used to not have anything on behavior analysis. Mm. And there was this one teacher, this woman, she's, she's an amazing vet. Uh, she came to one of our clinics, Alex. Do you remember Marion? Yep. Um, yes. And she very diplomatically, very with little steps, um, she was able to start teaching behavior analysis courses in the veterinarian curriculum. And the students loved it. And from there it became, you know, a standard in the teaching of the, um, of the curriculum because the te the, it was the students who, you wanted. know, who wanted it. And so it happened. I don't know how many years it took her <laughs> but um, she, it's now being taught to the students. So, which before, I mean, you know, there's al already quite a lot to learn when you're becoming a vet, you know, just physical stuff. But I think this is important part too. And she was able to uh, do a little bit what, you know, I think you're facing uh, as a challenge that there's, I guess, always resistance to change. And this seems like, and in a very punishment, negative reinforcement, um, dominant system, this looks like maybe something that is nice to have, but you know, you're dreaming girl or something like that. <laughs> so what, one, of, one of the things that it would be worth doing is to look up, and I believe the essay is still on the Karen Pryor clicker training website. But Karen, decades ago, Karen Pryor wrote an article called On Being a Changemaker. And it is definitely one to look up and to read periodically because she goes through the various stages that you will encounter when you are introducing a new idea into a system. And begins Do you remember the stages, Alex? Well, it begins with first they'll tell you- Make fun of you. Yeah, it's absolute rubbish. They'll make fun of you. They'll attack you. Mm. Then they'll ignore you. And then they'll um, begin to give it a try. And then they'll take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and just smile sweetly and say, yes, go for it. 
<laughs> I was just going to say, that'd be funny. <laughs> and and this, this idea that at first, you know, these people may attack you and, and you just smile sweetly because you know that at that point, they're at least aware of you. This is a good mm -hmm. thing. This is part of the process, uh, which helps you to be more resilient <clears throat> uh, when you see that, yes, this is a process. And I know in terms of the clicker training, I always think I, I tr that image of throwing a pebble in a pond and seeing the ripples go out, mm -hmm. that is such a strong metaphor for me that you throw a pebble in and the ripples go out and somebody else is throwing the pebbles in and some of those ripples are going to connect and you're going to meet up and those ripples become stronger. And, and then there's the, the idea of, well, we want to make this part of the mainstream. So we want to make clicker training horses part of the mainstream of horse training. And what I'm beginning to, I'm beginning to think of this very differently. The mainstream is there, there is a strong body of knowledge, we'll call it, that we have referred to as the mainstream. It's traditional mm -hmm. command-based, force-based, whatever the phrase is, horse training. And within that, it is what it is. And yes, you may make little dents in it. You might make it a little, uh, they're, they're, that they won't escalate the pressure quite so quickly, quite so far, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But you're not really going to make big inroads or changes in that body of work. It is what it is. But what we're doing is we're developing something that's different, something that's separate from. We're developing the clicker training. It has its own core belief systems. It has its own guiding principles. It has its own way of structuring lessons. It has clean loops. It has, you know, and yes, there are things that are common to both. So you will find that somebody who trains in a command-based setting may have uh, aspects of that, of uh, their training that are, that are shared with how you structure a lesson. But they're not, we're not trying to join up, not trying to make them uh, all one system. We are building our own training system. And as more and more people experiment with it, explore it, adopt it, begin to use it, then it begins to develop from this tiny little trickle that it was when I first started to experiment with it to a, a, a bigger stream, to a river, to you know, something that, that has its own current, its own draw, its own magnetic pull. It becomes its own major stream in and of itself. And it seems to me that that's really what you're doing right now, that you're at the trickle stage and mm. you're throwing pebbles into what can seem like a small pond because initially it's just your school and how far can the ripples go out. But you're talking to us. Yeah. And and there are people listening. And so those yeah. are pebbles that are being thrown, like you've taken a big handful of pebbles and just thrown them out. And some of them are going to land nowhere. They're going to land on, on dry ground and go nowhere. And a fair number of those pebbles that you're throwing out in this handful are going to land in other ponds. And yeah. people are going to be going, oh, 
well, this makes sense. Let me try this. Let me, let me try this with my equine learner rather than trying to go straight through to the outcome-oriented goal that I have. Let me teach skill layer by skill layer by skill layer so I, I maintain the enthusiasm of my equine learner. Let me, as a teacher of humans, whether that is in a school system, whether that is because you are a supervisor of employees in the corporate world, whatever, all of this applies. Mm -hmm. And so you're sending out a ripple to your math teacher who Mm -hmm. is going to be sending out ripples to his colleagues. And this is how it grows. And when you start to see students thriving instead of failing, because one of the things we also have to take into account is these students have far more alternatives available to them than certainly I had when I was growing up, you know, because when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all of the technology. We didn't have cell phones. You know, this, we didn't have this digital world that was competing for our attention. So you're competing for their attention. And the, the, the alternatives that they have are very tempting. Video games are designed to be addicting. Uh-huh. They're designed to grab them and hold on to them and not let them go. And if they're failing in the classroom, why in the world would they choose to pay attention in a classroom rather than go play a video game? So if they're not feeling successful in the classroom situation, you've lost them. They'll get that reinforcer somewhere else. Yeah. We see it every single day. We'll stop here with the metaphor of sending out ripples. If you have enjoyed this podcast, do please share it with your friends. Whether we're training horses or children, these concepts matter and they are relevant. So be one of the people who picks up a handful of pebbles and sends the ripples out by sharing this podcast with others. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Lucy. And until then, train well and have fun with your learners. Thank you.